that was my stealing a couple of minutes while people were still getting to their seats and, and all of that. Um, John chapter 5, if you're using a, a pew, pew, chair, rack, Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 890. Uh, and we are uh, continuing in our series in uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, if you would, if you're able, uh, would you please stand uh, and give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I will begin John 5, uh, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears uh, about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you that you do not have the love of <clears throat> love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in uh, his own name, you will receive you will receive him. Sorry, there's stuff under here. I'm moving stuff. My water was gone. Um uh, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And I'll call your attention to our response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would so be at work in these your words, in our hearts, in our minds. Uh, convince those who need convincing, convict those who need convicting. And would you sanctify all who need sanctifying to the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, maybe you noticed in the announcements that we're doing a, a Q&A Sunday school class. We've got this one Sunday we had to figure out what do we do during Sunday school on December 17th. And so we decided we would just do sort of a Q&A thing. Um, if you get our, if our, our church email, if you have a question, there's a link there. You can just send me an email. Um, somebody actually emailed me a question the other day. And I got excited. 
But what's interesting is it connects with this passage. Now, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm not even going to exactly tell you what it was. But I will tell you that it raises sort of the, the question of apologetics. How do we defend the faith? How do we defend Christ, Christianity, the things that we believe against the objections of the world around us? There's a, there's a whole vein of thought that suggests that, quite honestly, if we could just produce the answers to all the questions, if we could line up enough witnesses, if we could pile up enough testimony, then people would be convinced of who Jesus is and, and what he's come to do. Perhaps you remember Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. What's interesting is that the Bible never actually does that. And in fact, the Bible sort of uses evidence. It uses testimony. It uses that sort of practice, that sort of um, that, that attempt at apologetics, if you will, to convict, not to convert. Think about Romans 1. There's plenty of evidence for you to know that God exists. Just look at creation around you. The evidence is there. However, you don't believe the evidence. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible uses that sort of, that sort of courtroom feel. That, that lining up of witnesses, that piling up of evidence as a way to convict, not really to convert. And that's in essence what's going on in our passage this morning. So thank you for your email on Friday to give me an introduction to this sermon text. But that's, that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. It's uh, Jesus is lining up witnesses. Um, I, I'm taking them to be three. They could be four or five, depending on how you wanted to split it up. There's no right or wrong there, right? Um, I'm taking them to be three, and you'll see why in a minute. But Jesus lines up witnesses and, and sets them before these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who have come, well, I, I guess that's reason enough to remind you because of how things have been the last four Sundays, to remind you what's happened in the first part of John 5. John 5 began with Jesus healing, healing a paralyzed Man, which sounds great and all, except that he did it on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders didn't notice that the guy who couldn't walk suddenly was. They only noticed that he was carrying his mat and you can't work on the Sabbath. Well, when he pointed his finger at Jesus and said, the guy that healed me told me to pick up my mat, they said, cool, now we've got a bigger target. And then they rebuked, rebuked Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus' defense was, well, the Father has been working every single day since creation. He's never stopped. Why would I be any different? And then they had him. Not for just violating the fourth commandment, but for blasphemy. 
Jesus' defense was, I and the Father are one. That's the context. His audience, these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees have already rejected that testimony and it's to them that Jesus brings these three witnesses. First, however, I need you to see the would-be witness, right? So there's, there's first a would-be witness, the son of the father in verse 31. Did you notice? I hope you noticed. And I actually hope it bothered you. Did you notice what Jesus said about entering his own testimony in verse 31? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So let me get this straight. Jesus, whenever he speaks, whenever he teaches, whenever he does things, he's always truthful unless he's talking about himself. That's not what he means. Right, he's, he's not saying, the Greek word there actually is the word for true, but he doesn't mean true in the sense of as opposed to false. He means considered to be true. And in fact, some of your versions actually say that, deemed to be true. Other versions will say valid. Um, the, the point is really sort of twofold. One, it's not admissible in a court of law. Because if you remember the old... Testament required two or three witnesses. And so Jesus speaking on his own behalf doesn't count. But more than that, he's really speaking like his audience. He's speaking like the people around him. Well, if I defend myself, you've already determined that what I say isn't true. In fact, just look back at verse 18. Because in verse 18, um, this is why, because he claimed to be the son, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you see? The jury has already made its decision. They've decided... That can't be. You're not the son of God. You can't be who you now claim to be. So they've already decided he's not telling the truth. So he's, he's using that kind of language, that kind of perspective. He's speaking as though... <coughs> His audience is speaking, has already determined that he's just not and can't possibly be telling the truth. We know people, perhaps even you from time to time, perhaps you have done this as well. We determined the verdict about Jesus, before we even consider what Scripture actually has to say. We know people who know enough to say that can't possibly be. Of course, they have no foundation for it. They have no grounds for that. They have no reason for their objection other than, well, I'm just going to decide that that can't possibly be true. And so they 
They dismiss the Bible. They dismiss Jesus out of hand without ever actually hearing the evidence. And so Jesus recognizes that his own testimony wouldn't be admissible in this particular court, not a real court, mind you, that seems to be a pattern in Jesus' life to end up in sham trials all the time. But here he finds himself on the witness stand as the, the role of a defense attorney and, and producing witnesses and his audience has already determined their response, their verdict. And so Jesus brings the first witness. And what you'll notice is I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally, the, the outline is, is a little cumbersome because I'm intentionally trying to draw attention to the fact that, that every single one of these witnesses comes from the Father. So the first witness, John the Baptist, the prophet sent by the Father. And in verses 32 to 35, Jesus points us to John the Baptist. And you could go back. We, we won't. There's no reason to go back and rehash sermons from seven, eight, nine, ten weeks ago. There's no reason to go back and reread John 1. You can certainly do that this afternoon. You need something to do for your, your gorgeous Lord's Day afternoon. Go back and read the first couple of chapters of, of John. But there you'll find uh, John the Baptist who comes as the second Elijah. As the, the last prophet whose job it is, whose responsibility it is to prepare the way of the Lord. He's doing exactly what the Old Testament said he would do. He's come to announce, hey, the, the, the one who is to come, the promised Messiah, he's behind me. I'm here to announce his arrival. He's coming and I'm preparing his way. Just as a, a burning and, and shining lamp sort of attracts attention. It attracts moths. You do realize that I guess we say, you know, our, our lamps, right? We have lamps. They have light, but they don't really burn, right? They didn't, you couldn't just flip a switch and on. I mean, it actually was actual fire, their lamps, right? And so John has this sort of burning and shining lamp that, that attracts the uh, attention of those around him. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. The, the Pharisees even sent a delegation to him to find out, to ask questions, to observe, to, to see what he was doing, to find out who he was and why on earth are you baptizing people? And Mark's gospel tells us that even Herod Antipas, Antipas, you figure it out and come back to me. Actually listened for a while, gladly. A wicked ruler was willing to give John the Baptist some attention for a time. And, and there's the problem, right? People were willing to listen, but only for a time. People were willing to listen until he actually pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that point, they said, hold on, that's too much. You've gone too far. We all know people who can be drawn in by a compelling speaker. Right? We're all sort of drawn in by someone who's whose style, whose delivery, whose whatever is just is sort of enticing and captivating, right? Their, their whole delivery, everything about them is just attractive and it grabs your attention and can't let go. They've got these great rhetorical skills. They've got a, a commanding voice or a presence or whatever. But eventually their message turns to the gospel, it turns to Christ, it turns to the authority of the Bible, and people say, hold on, I'm out. That's where I get off. I'm happy to ride this train as long as it's comfortable and as long as it sounds really cool to listen to you, but as soon as you confront me about sin and my need for Christ, I'm out. I'm done. Publicly affirm the Bible's teaching on marriage between one man and one woman. Publicly affirm that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That all religions do not indeed all end up in the same exact place and see what happens. And here in John 5, Jesus addresses this Jewish audience that was willing to give their attention to John as long as it was comfortable to them. As soon as John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Pharisees were gone. There's a second witness. The first witness, John the Baptist, the prophet sent by God. A second witness, the works of Jesus given by the Father in verse 36. Did you notice Jesus turns his attention to the things that he does. Now, he's already told us that the things that I say and the things that I do, the Father has given me to say and to do. Which means that when he does these works, when he performs these works, he's testifying to the fact that he and the Father are one. And you think to yourself, well, hold on a second. What works exactly? Well, there's this little issue of Turning water into wine back in chapter 2. Now, he didn't turn grapes into wine. He didn't turn grape juice into wine. See, that's, that's normal. That's natural. You leave grapes alone long enough, they'll become wine. They'll sour. They'll start to produce out, right? You leave grape juice alone. You leave that alone long enough, and it, that's not what happened. Water, if you leave it long enough, it becomes water. So it's, a, it's an entirely contra-natural process for water to become wine. And that's exactly what Jesus did back in chapter 2. Exercising his power and authority over the created order. Well, what gives him the right to do that except that he was the agent of creation to begin with? John 1. He's the one who brought everything into existence. So, of course, he has the power and authority over it. 
if he created it, if he made it, if he designed it, if he was the agent of the production, the creation of water on the earth, then he has the right to then take it back, turn it into something else and, and spit it back out again, so to speak, in some other form or setting. There's this picture then of, of Jesus exercising authority. I mean, and, and in the immediate context, I mean, like it, there's no mention of time lapse. If you'll humor me, I've pretended that we're still dealing with the same Sabbath. It's still the Sabbath. Now, it's possible that verse 18 intends to sort of indicate time lapse, but that also may just be sort of a heading for what's coming. In other words, the man that Jesus healed, the paralyzed guy who couldn't get off his mat and into the pool when the angel supposedly stirred the water, right? That guy is still there somewhere holding his mat. I used this illustration before um, a couple of weeks ago when when we preached that passage. I'll just use it again here. Um, back when I was a kid, I broke a couple of bones in a in my right toe, a couple of toe bones. Three toe three and four, I think. It may have been two and three. Uh, I wasn't even really doing anything weird. That's what really bothered me. I was in a cast for. Three or four weeks. It wasn't that long. I had one a little rubber thing on the bottom. I could still walk and climb trees and do all the things that kids do. And when the cast came off, my right muscle was noticeably smaller than my left calf muscle. Now, they're not exactly huge to begin with. But I could tell that you could notice the difference. Right? You ever seen like a, a, a newborn horse? They get up and their feet are all splayed out. And they're trying to find their balance. And their knees are all weak. And well, that guy didn't, the paralyzed guy didn't do that. Like he wouldn't have had 38 years he was paralyzed. I had a cast for 38 days and could see the difference in my, 38 years. He didn't have muscles. Like they couldn't hold him up. His bones couldn't hold him up. And Jesus heals him and immediately he picks up his mat and walks away. Jesus is showing by his works that he has power over all of creation. That, that as the agent of creation, he has the right and the power and the authority to make it do things it's not supposed to do. And there are still greater works yet to come. Culminating, speaking of things that aren't supposed to happen, in his resurrection. Jesus has proved and will continue to prove his power and authority over Creation. These works given by the Father to the Son in the flesh should tell you something about who Jesus is. He's not 
just some dude. He's no mere man. I challenge anyone in this room to turn water into wine. Jesus is not just some great moral teacher. He's not some just great example for you to follow. He's much, much more than that. He's not just some great teacher who happened to learn the Bible better than most. He actually has the power over creation itself. There's a third witness. Uh, The first is John the Baptist, the prophet sent by the Father. Uh, The works of Jesus given by the Father. And then finally, and I'm lumping all this into one sort of witness, uh, the word spoken by the Father, verses 37 to 47. You'll notice in verse 37, Jesus says, The Father has sent me and has himself borne witness about me. He may very well be talking about that voice at his baptism. This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Pharisees would have heard it. The people there at his baptism would have heard it. But you notice the way Jesus suddenly begins to talk about the Bible. He turns as as soon as he mentions the voice of God, essentially, in verse 37, uh, he has borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard. He then turns his attention immediately to Scripture and to Moses. And I think part of what he's doing is Sort of, okay, yes, the Father spoke at my baptism, but that's not the only time the Father has spoken. He's actually spoken throughout the entire Old Testament, and it all points to me. God's word from start to finish bears witness to the person and work of the Messiah. And that seems to be the direction that Jesus is going here in these verses. And you know, these are people. Jesus is speaking to people who memorized chunks of Scripture that you're scared to read. They had memorized the stuff that you kind of when you read your Bible through in a year, your eyes just sort of glaze over. You're pretty sure your eyeballs touch the words. You really didn't pay attention. You got no idea. Like, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do with this, right? Numbers, okay, I'll just read it. Eye on every word, which was Professor Kara's requirement, uh, my New Testament professor in seminary. Did you read every word? Eye on every word. That was the requirement. Well, we do that, right? We get portions of the Bible. My eyeballs are just going to touch the words. I'm just going to shut off my brain. I have no idea what to do with it. They had that stuff memorized. They didn't need a book to sing the Psalms. You're talking to people who knew the Bible. You're talking to people who, who... 
had it, who had God's word, right? You search the scriptures, verse 39, and yet verse 38, you don't have his word abiding in you. They, it was in their heads. It was in their brains. They could spit it back out again, right? You say, well, I mean, I, I, I have my quiet time every single day. I read the Bible every single day. And I've, I've read the Bible through in a year, every single year for the last 15 years. And yet, that seems to be the confidence the Pharisees had. They searched the scriptures because... You know that in them you have eternal life. It's not that they'll find it there. Their confidence was in the fact that they knew it. That they read it. Well, I've I've read the Bible. That's all I need to do. Right? I'm done. Jesus' point is, well, his point is, you missed the point. Like, it's... It's all fine and good. Okay, don't hear me saying, don't read your Bible. I'm not saying that. Don't swing the pendulum too far. My point is, your confidence isn't in the number of quiet times you have. Your confidence is is in the one to whom Scripture points you. That's your hope. Right? You search the Scriptures because you think in them... You have eternal life, but they talk about me. And it's in me that you have eternal life. That's Jesus' point to his audience. They seem to think that the salvation, the honor, the, the merit is in the reading, not in the understanding. But a right understanding of the Bible will lead to beholding Christ because the Bible is about him. Do you remember John's point? Do you remember why John's writing this gospel? John begins with behold Jesus. And he ends with, I'm writing these things so that you might believe in Jesus. The whole theme of the Gospel of John is behold and believe. And it's not enough to have and to read and to know the Word. It's enough to know the one to whom the Word points us. About whom the Word teaches and explains and points us. And so there's this this theme then that really the whole of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the maps is all about Jesus. Even Moses. Now, keep in mind, these are, these, are, these are Jewish lawyers. Right? They had the law so tightly boxed in. So they, they built fences inside the fences that God gave. Well, if God put up these fences, we should add some fences so we don't get close to those fences. It's the law of Moses that they, it's in the law of Moses that they had their hope and confidence. We're doing 
all the things that Moses told us not to do. In fact, Jesus, that's actually why we're having this conversation. Because you worked on the Sabbath. And Jesus' point is, I didn't break the Sabbath law. It's never wrong to exercise deeds of necessity and mercy. Moses even, those first five books of the Bible. Yes, Numbers and Leviticus are about Jesus. So how then could they miss? How could these Pharisees miss so badly? If Jesus can line up these three witnesses, or four or five, depending on how you want to split it up, right? If he can line up these witnesses and and condemn them, convict them, how can they have been so wrong? Well, actually, he tells us in verses 42 to 44. There are three warnings there, three reasons for their failure. One is, verse 42, they don't actually love God. They love themselves. They love their own honor. They love their own glory. They don't love God. And there are people out there who will seek positions of authority, even in the church, who love themselves enough that they'll teach and twist and misread and misapply God's word for their own good. There's a second warning in verse 43 um, against self-promoting personalities. You'll see in verse 43, there are these people who, if, if someone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You, you don't with me. Jesus says, I, I could tell you, I can give you my testimony. You reject it. If Billy Bob walks up here and suddenly claims to have insider knowledge and in his own authority sort of exert himself... You have no problem following him. Or maybe they themselves are the ones trying to be these self-promoting personalities. Are we not tempted by the same thing? Self-promoting people, personalities, charlatans, quite honestly, uh, who claim to have wisdom or, or teaching gifts or secret knowledge or insight that nobody else has ever had. Verse 44, the third sort of warning. The Pharisees seek the praise of men more than the praise of God. When we seek man's honor, when we seek man's glory, we will twist God's word for our good rather than for Jesus's glory. The problem is that there are Heart is hard, not that their mind is dull. You know, it'd be easy for us to sort of cast aspersions at people outside the church who have decided to follow their own sort of man-made, made-up Messiah. But this is a warning to people in the church. Do you know Jesus? Are you following the Jesus that is given to us in Scripture? Or have you kind of said, well, my Jesus wouldn't. Or I'm pretty sure that my Jesus would. If you ever say my Jesus, you might be in danger of 
this very problem. Creating a Messiah, creating uh, the, the Jesus of, of your own wishes, your own desires, rather than the one given to us in Scripture. And so the question to us then is, is your Jesus, is our Jesus the true Jesus? As the Father has been describing him from the beginning of the Bible, or have you made up someone who is entirely unable to save you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is all about Jesus, that points us to him from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. Uh, you have anticipated that promised Messiah You've written about our deliverance, our salvation found in him and in him alone. And we pray that you would unstop our ears, open our minds, and more importantly, in this case, soften our hearts to receive your word, to see the true uh, Jesus as he's given to us in scripture. Would you free us from the praise of men and the desire to Uh, to create a Messiah of our own image, of our own liking, and instead to trust in your word and to follow Christ as you've given him to us. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.